decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Xavier Parkhouse Parker. Xavier is currently the CEO of Cambridge Future Tech a uniquely technology-first venture builder working closely with top-tier universities for positive global impact. Over 2022, Xavier has led CFT's venture-building activities, helping to build seven deep tech ventures, supporting them to build their teams with 28 new jobs created, and raising the necessary funding to develop deep tech ventures. Xavier is also CEO of Minion, a CFT venture. Minion is the classification coprocessor based on a novel, novel approach for artificial intelligence, demonstrating over 10,000 times improvement compared to equivalent AI coprocessors. Xavier is a serial founder who started his first company at 15 in e-commerce. Xavier has led several startups with technologies such as AI, media, marketing, and HR tech. Xavier holds a master's degree from the University of Cambridge. He's also been featured in The Guardian, USA Today, NextWeb, and other publications and was one of the CVC Capital Partners Young Innovators for 2017 and NACUE's National Entrepreneur of the Year for 2016. Xavier, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast and uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dan. I'm uh, excited to talk about all things uh, early stage, deep tech and uh, startups. Yeah, well, it's quite a journey that you've uh, been on. Um, why don't we start in your latest incarnation as the CEO and co-founder of Cambridge Future Tech? Like, the talk talk about how that got off the ground. You know, the journey you've been on with that, and and where you're going. Yeah, sure. So, uh, Cambridge Future Tech um, was it came out of um, myself and my co-founder Owen, um, who's our CEO, and we were working on another company, a, a licensing business with luxury watches and, and big brands. Um, and I'd come in after to leaving my previous startup to to get in and, and really build up the the sort of commercial aspect of this business, as well as the operational side and to automate a lot of this. And um, very quickly, I'd managed to achieve quite a lot of this. And it was quite it was quite cool. Um, and then the pandemic hit in March uh, 2020. And, you know, we had a lot of time. And everyone had a lot of time in it. You know, we were working out what we could do. That business, basically, a lot of the ideas that we'd had to really scale this up, which was going to be things like in-person events and stuff like that, sort of died down because, you know, we were all living at home and we were all staying at home, um, you know, not not going out, not doing events. So we we had time to think about what we could do. Um, and both of us have this real passion around deep tech, like innovations. I'd worked in, in and, and ran... Uh, AI companies and I'd always been really excited in what was going on here um, and Owen at the time was working and, and and had some really exciting stuff and patents in quantum technologies he's also a former fighter pilot typhoon pilot for 13 years and at the time was also at BAE Systems working on advanced technologies so we had this really sort of good ecosystem and on top of that the one of the things that we were doing was mentoring a lot of the uh, Cambridge programs for academic founders and general founders but primarily academic founders and, and scientists who were going through with you know exciting innovative technologies that had the potential for quite big impact and we were mentoring on these accelerators and incubators and what kept happening is 
they would go through them, they would learn, they'd get really good experience, build up a bit of a network, and then they would come to us as, as mentors and advisors from these programs and go, great, what, what's next? How do I, how do I take this on? Um, and uh, there was a really stark one of these, which we didn't end up working with in the end, who said to us, he said, look, guys, can you be my co-founders? And we went, no, no, you know, that, that's not right for us. But we, that, was, that was when we were already looking at how can we support this ecosystem? And we went down this route of, do we become consultants? Do we do that? Do we look at a fee model? Do we look at building an accelerator? Um, and we settled on Venture Builder because we think that this is a way that we can be co-founders to a significant number of businesses effectively with a core team of commercial, business, entrepreneurial, financial experts with the capital and, and resources around it to make this happen, um, supporting these founders, but supporting multiple people but without taking fees from them so that we weren't, you know, reducing the, the, the capital costs. And also a lot of these startups don't have fees. You know, they're very early stage. They, you know, most of the time they, they're not even companies. They're just people. They're just people spinning out of universities. Um, we got talking to universities about it. They said, oh, this is great. You know, management teams are always a thing we really struggle with. Um, and we started effectively honing this proposition. And that's when we brought in George, our third co-founder, who's a, an experienced banker and financier working with these types of companies for the last 10 years. Um, and that sort of came together at the end of 2020. Um, and that was where Cambridge Future Tech really arose from. Can, can, you, um, can you just clarify, um, because it's not a term that's come up in the podcast before, but I know it's a term that floats around the ecosystem. What you mean by venture builder as opposed to, say, a venture capitalist? Great. That's a great question. Um, so... And, and, and the reason why I think that's a really good question is because there are so many different ways of looking at what, what, what venture building is. And there are so many different ways of um, terms for it as well. <clears throat> There's startup studio, venture studio. Some accelerators are quite like venture builders. Some venture builders are quite like, like accelerators. Um, we like the term venture builder because it means that we, you know, it, it says that we are building, we are working with you to build ventures. Um, but what what we what we do as a venture builder is we go technology first. So we start with the technology. We find exciting, innovative, prospective technologies that will have a significant impact on the market with academics from research groups, typically sometimes from inside corporates and companies um, that have got really deep experience within this, this space to bring alongside and develop on that technology, um, especially if they've got great management skills and can manage the engineering or the, the, the research teams. Um, and then we pair them with our network of experienced founders, operators um, that know that space, know that ecosystem, know that industry, and also know how to lead a company through these, you know, what is an incredibly hard challenge of, of building a business. Um, and then the Cambridge Future Tech team supports all of this, facilitating the market entry points, understanding the go-to-market, understanding who the customers are, understanding the financial needs, understanding how to build operations, manage teams, build teams, structure a company, you know, right down to the, the governance of how to run board meetings, which is a challenge for very new people, um, you know, sure. that have never done this. You know, how do you actually run a board meeting? How do you deal with investors? How do you deal with investors that are all around the world? It's things like this that CFT sort of supports. And we are heavily active within our companies. Um, and that's what we mean by Venture Builder. There are alternatives that are pairing people together and, and sort of setting them off um, and with some learning and development. And we do bits of learning and development. We do days of training and things like this. But it is very much that actually what our founders, what our academics get is access to a team of people who know what they're doing that can spend a day, half day, 
you know, a few days a week running and working inside these companies as operators. Um, and then the, the network that we can open up as well with, you know, everything from family offices and, and large, large investors, VCs, hires and, and talent pools and, and, and as well, the sort of big corporates that we work with to, to get entry points, early concepts, early uh, proof of concept studies or whatever it is um, for these exciting technologies. Can you can you give us an example, a window into when you step in in that way to a company? Um, you can use a, a theoretical or a real one, obviously, um, as you as you wish. And then, like, can you give an example of like when you you come in and step in for a few days and kind of get basically you're saying getting right under the bonnet of 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 the of the venture? What does that What does that look like on an ideal level where where it works really well? That's great. Good good question. So look. The, the there isn't like a, a case example of like generically this is how it is so i'll go very specific here um yeah. with one of our companies um i'll talk about mimicry which is one that i i look after a lot um there is vascular self-healing concrete technology company that's come from university of cambridge um and it's led by academic researcher um as cto and coo liz and livia and an artist almani who's the ceo and when i say you know spend a couple of days this in at the moment we're preparing for their next fundraising round so i'm spending i spent uh, a couple of days this week in their offices going through and red teaming and and sort of really do, being the devil's advocate and and really assessing every single part of that business the business model the investment materials the technology materials that would be demonstrating how we did talk about this company how we talk about the future of this company effectively breaking everything down and working what and doing these sort of intense stress testing that we can then go, okay, here we know we need development. And then, for example, um, my director of research, James, he's going to spend a few days next week working on exactly how we develop up that that business model to optimize it for the future, which is and understand exactly what needs to happen, identify the target customers, suppliers, the aspects of that value chain, who all these people are, so that we have a very clear plan and then also start to build those relationships. That's how it works. It's there, there's specific things where we are jumping in, and then on an ongoing basis, I'm regularly talking to the founders about you know challenges with this, challenges with how to hire, how to onboard new hires. They've just uh, had a new, a couple of new engineers start this morning, um, and really sort of you know how do you get people ingratiated into the company? So there's this very specific jumping in and getting really involved, and then there's the ongoing of how do I do this? How can we help with this? How can we optimize this? How can we make this company? more effective, faster moving, more commercially viable, and, you know, again, more appealing to investors in the future. So is it the fact that you're in Cambridge? It, does this model work when you've got, when you apply it to academic founders that who are coming out of institutions at a very high level? Does it work best when you, because it sounds like what you're doing is you're coming in and you're overlaying a whole sort of strata of, of expertise onto highly, highly talented, competent people who might not be, you know, startup founders or business people. Is that where there is the most value adding this model? Or, or does it work where you actually have someone like yourself, where, where you're, you know, you're a founder, experienced founder? Or where do you, do you think it is the academic thing where this model really works? I, I, it's, it's, you know what, Dan, the good question, because I'd never really thought about it quite, you know, where is it optimum? I think it is optimal in, in terms of, you know, that's where we are adding this huge amount of value because it's actually, you know, tabula rasa, it's a blank slate a lot of the time um, with academic founders and, and Cambridge and we're working with Newcastle. We're looking at things in, in London and Oxford as well. 
um, it does it does help a lot. But mimicry is such a fantastic example of, of how CFT works because not only do you have those academic founders who Livia, who is absolutely fantastic, Dr. Livia Roberta de Souza, um, she's a um, you know career academic, senior postdoc, um, lecturer, and, and this stuff, but has never had that commercial experience, never really worked outside of academia. Um, and then there's Liz, who's again PhD, um, Dr. Liz Zijing Li, um, PhD in in the same space in the same research group. Did spend some time in KPMG, uh, sorry, in Deloitte in consulting, um, but has again not that much commercial experience. But if I contrast that with the CEO Artis Money, she has run businesses. She's run um, large development businesses. You know, she had fifty um, engineers working for her in the Balkans um, on uh, cloud and cloud and infrastructure technologies. Um, so she has come from that. So it's it's one of those things where working with the team generally, there's a lot that we're doing. But working with Arthur, it's it's very specific things about transitioning and understanding how to get the scale up aspects of this, and then supporting on this market research thing, which I'll be honest is a one of the biggest things I think is missing from pretty much all early stage startups and very particularly deep tech startups is understanding markets, understanding you know, what a market is for starters, like what does that look like, how to understand which market we're going into, where there are a specific need, whether it's the best need, whether it's a low-hanging fruit, whether it's a long-term um, successful proposition, something like that. Um, and that's something that we do, and that's why we have really good experts when it comes to markets. And I always pick up markets because when we're doing mentoring and advising, it's usually the biggest question. It's usually, you know, what's the market? How's this work? Um, you know, How's is this big enough? Is a VC going to like it? So you can't obviously be a domain. You can't be a domain expert across everything. It's impossible, right? So you obviously have this network of, like you said, mentors, advisors. Let's just take a gig because this model has never come up, and it's really interesting to unpack it if you're if you're okay doing doing so. So let's say let's say someone comes to you with like a deep tech or something that you haven't really, you know, it's not it's not completely foreign, but you haven't really seen before. How do you go about finding or accessing the network that can begin to analyze that problem and then interface that? with the market potential and then what do you what does that process look like when you're then analyzing the market how, how, how would that work okay so the, the, there's one thing i will pick up on there so whilst you cannot be an expert in every market i absolutely agree with that the tools and process for understanding markets is pretty much the case across the board and our director of research, James, has, you know, decades of experience in doing this. And I'm not saying, you know, there's some markets like when we started working on Minion semiconductor technology, knew the space pretty much inside out, bit of work needed to 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 update it with, you know, 2022 data and, and see exactly what was happening there. And, you know, there's a lot that we could have done and can do and, and have done in, in value chain, but it's something he knew pretty well. When we were looking, and uh, we didn't take this one on in the end for a number of reasons, but when we were looking at a quantum computing startup, he knew a little bit, but not very much. So it was a case of, A, there's that huge piece of research applying his his skill set over a two-week period to basically become an expert in that field. And now, you know, I'll mention something in quantum, goes, oh, this, 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 and this, and he just knows it. But then we are accessing experts. So on the technical side, we definitely are accessing experts. We went and built effectively a sounding board of people from um, the academic world on on this, in in you know professors of quantum computing or quantum technologies and things to assess it. Professors in came in in chemistry as well because of the way that this was working, um, and then we went and and also looked at the TMT space as well. So the the 
telecoms and media um, space as well to, to make sure we were assessing that part by talking to experts that we have in our, in our network. And we, we've, over, over the foundation of, of Cambridge Futurech, we spent a significant amount of time developing networks into the, the sectors where we saw that deep tech has the biggest applications, which are places like telecoms. It's also places like construction and agriculture. Um, because we don't do therapeutics, we haven't highly ne- uh, networked into into the you know the AstraZeneca's of the world. But now we are looking at things in this space and we are developing those networks because we can see ex- exciting opportunities from our technologies there. So we, de- we tend to have this sort of way of doing it. And one of the things that we specifically do for the companies on this is that when they start with us, we'll build three advisory boards. Um, and one of them is a is effectively a business advisory board, as in mentors and people like that who are like uh, people who are able to to help out with, you know, company founder issues and, and things like this, like general business people um, that might not be industry specific. And then there's two industry ones. There's the industry one, which is very much, you know, potentially regulators, potentially the sort of players in this, potentially government bodies, um, you know, and and again, experts in this space. And then there's the customer advisory board, which ends up being, we'll find three or four target customers and we will go and find very senior people in those industries and we will build them in and build relationships with them effectively in the first week or first couple of weeks of a company working with us so that there is constant communication so we can understand it. That's that's how, that's uh, basically how we no, look at this. I understand. It sounds like we could just talk about that for an hour, that process, like, like there must be layers of, of how that works. But I wanted to ask about another aspect. So deep techs come up uh, before or several times, but we talked to um, Silicon uh, Roundabout, um, they're obviously a deep tech community. So it's come up on the podcast, uh, I think it was a series two. Um, but I'm interested in it from, I'm going to throw something at you, which I, uh, the, 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 one of the reasons that founder tech has become a relevant conversation is there's, there's a shallowing and diminishment of kind of like very low hanging horizontal B2B SaaS e-commerce marketplace floating around in pitch decks and floating around in VC funnels. And therefore what people are realizing is that actually you have to go deep into a vertical with a founder that understands complex problems, has that founder market fit around those complex problems. What, what we has come up as a useful term of scalable niches, you know, like they're right inside a niche that they understand. If you could unlock the potential of there is a whole new set of value that you can actually access rather than try and graze horizontally and try and find the next delivery or just in time grocery company, go deeper, find these unique founders with unique expertise and then unlock that. It sounds like what you, the venture builder is, is uh, um, sort of prescribes to that that viewpoint. But I, but I'd love to try, kind of check that with you, and, and how else you might frame that. And, and do you have that view of like the horizontal sort of market becoming shallower and shallower? There's just less interesting things, and therefore you go deep into deep tech, vertical, scalable niches. That's where the value is. What's your view on that? So, by its very nature, with the companies we're looking at, they are. Firstly, you know, the, the deliveries of the world, these B2C, B2B2C or B2C or whatever, platformy-ish technologies, I think are mostly nonsense and a lot of them are going to fail. I think yeah. they've they've scaled too quickly and not understood business models. And I think a lot of that is, is what you're saying. You know, they've gone horizontal, horizontal, horizontal instead of building any depth. And somebody could come in tomorrow with, you know, a couple of hundred million and be able to take a significant part of Deliveroo's share. You know, they yeah. could do that. It could happen. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no depth. There's no protectability there. And um, interestingly, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about very recently is that 
when we look at markets, there's actually there's the big market opportunity. You know, there's this huge thing, but it's a, it is a case of absolutely flying into one market, taking that niche, having real sort of pedigree and, and can, you know clout within that sector within that beachhead, owning that, and then you can look at potentially horizontal. And yeah. the, the niches we're talking about, you know, our agricultural robotics technology is picking to start with one crop to to pick literally to pick with uh, yeah. with their, their robotics now their technology is very versatile it is potentially able to be modular and look at adjacent markets but it needs to do very well in that one space very yeah. very quickly yeah i'd say that for them particularly there are other technologies though where it isn't the case for that so minion with the semiconductor space it actually you know we have picked a niche which is classification ai problems but that niche is and we're trying to find the data on this, but it is it is more than two thirds of all AI compute. And yet this is the sort of comparison there. So there's a niche, but that niche happens to be very, very big. But that is a sort of very, very broad, wide um, technology that's that's platform level technology that sort of is a step change compared to alternatives in, in this space. Um, and that one sort of by its nature has to be having said that, there are about 15 to 20 companies this that, that Minion will ever sell to um, because of the nature of that industry. So whilst we are looking at very broad, because again, the nature of that industry is broad, it's it's in everything we do. I mean, we're literally using chipsets right now on our, on our laptops and, and phones and whatever and watches. Um, so, you know, it's in everything we do. So it is broad by its nature. Um, but we are very much like in that space. And for that one, the amount of expertise that are needed to make that work from industry, from from people who know this place inside out is, is phenomenal. So even I think what I'm saying is, is even in the cases where there are broad applications, you do have to be very, very focused. You have to have the people for those businesses that really are focused and know that place inside out to make them work. And I think it's doubled in deep tech than it would be in, in, in other sectors, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's load there's loads here. I am actually going to go over to the, to the switch deck to kind of start asking these questions. So, because the first one that came to mind, which is on there, which is the pitch deck, right? How suitable is the pitch deck to this model? Like, because I'm I actually this what's come up in the, I, I I'm quite antagonistic towards it. I, I think it's an out of date legacy tool that you would never design today. Um, you'd never develop that as a comms tool or a strategic. It's, it's okay to sort of like tweet with a model, calibrate things, okay. But there are some scenarios where it works really, really well. In in this space, where you've got an academic trying to kind of frame a problem that can be commercially scaled, does it work well or would or, or do you use other tools to assess the opportunity? Okay, so, so first part, interestingly, something we have started to do now, and it is really quite nice, um, is that we actually, when we're sending out and we're, the, our companies are fundraising, we will now send a video alongside yeah. even we're doing our own one and we send a video now these videos are explaining they give the feeling they show the people that you know talking to camera like that they, they, they explain what's going on right they give a really nice feeling so that somebody an investor can go oh yeah no actually i would like to see more information now please you know that's that's what these videos do so that's and we we, we think that it's a really great way interestingly this comes from investment banking um which uh, when when an ipo is going on they create videos and they send videos, you know, two, three, four minute videos to investors to, to so that people can see them easily go, yep, get it, cool, now send me the investment memo 
um, and the the memorandum, the all the details, you know, the three hundred page documents needed for an IPO or whatever it would be. Um, that this comes from that, and, and it works very very well at the early stage. We're finding it fantastic. Um, what I will say is the best bit about pitch decks is that it's really easy to assess a pitch deck very very quickly and see where flaws are. Um, now those flaws might not be flaws in the business, but they might be flaws in the founder's thinking, which goes, okay, this is where we need to develop. It's 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 a really good sort of um, validation exercise about what that founder's development is and where they are along those journeys. Um, and we do find that about pitch decks. Um, the other thing I will say about pitch decks, and again, I'm going to come back to the semiconductor space here, um, is that uh, it's when you are talking about something that is one of the if not the most complicated industries in the world in terms of the value chain the very fact that you have to put that information onto a singular slide is an exercise in in a lot of things but it's it's an exercise in simplicity to get a message across and it means that people if you can successfully do that people can go i get it now i've understood this i can now do this and means that people who aren't experts in investing in this space can understand it. And I think that's one of the biggest values of a pitch deck. Now, what does the pitch deck not do? doesn't show personality of founders. And I think pandemic, yeah, people were raising money without ever meeting investors. I don't like that in any way, shape or form. I think you need to meet people. And now we're post this. I don't want to raise money from people I've never met either. I, you know, I want to, it, it's very hard to assess it. So that's why I think video is another really great thing because you can show personality. And at the end of the day, in the early stage, yes, you're investing in tech. Yes, you're investing in proposition, traction, customers, the financial metrics, all of this stuff. But you are investing in people. And it's very hard to assess that from a pitch deck because you've usually got three lines on who a person is and it's like, who cares? Uh, you've got to have that. And I think a video is a fantastic way of doing this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm not, I'm not going to do an ad for what we're doing, but it, literally we're scaling that that approach. Um, <laughs> uh, literally, that's what, what's now called pilot round. Is, is literally, do, as you've described it, doing that scale, enabling founders to do that onboard, create those videos and distribute them to the right people. But it leads to, it leads to the um, next question, which is, and I think this is super interesting, again, in, in your model, that founder market fit, even though... Um, you know, it's a trope that, you know, and I think it's true that 80 to 90% of it of the value equation early on, especially uh, pre-product, is obviously the founder. Um, there are so few models to evaluate that founder and even the term founder market fit, which is the natural cousin, obviously, and the obvious obvious go-to um, to, uh, to contrast or, or counter product market fit isn't used. It's not popular. It's not a popular term. It is, it's there, but it's not like it should be just obviously, well, what's that? You know, when you say, well, someone's founder market fit, there should be a model and rigor behind that. I totally agree. The video is probably the best way to convey that. We kind of call them a, a cross between a TikTok and a TED talk, you know, that kind of that vibe. But but what what do you what do you, because of what when you're particularly doing with academics um, and like I, I understand saying some like mimicry, there's a blend of you know people who are sort of academic but also commercial. But you really are sort of when you're doing someone that's academically driven in deep tech, that founder market fit is like premium currency, right? It's what is differentiating opportunity A from opportunity B to opportunity C. So why do, I'd love to, let me ask a double sort of sided question. I'd love to see your insight into founder market fit because of the way that you, you see, see the space and you're evaluating founders um, and, and, and also why you think it's not properly understood or kind of like mobilized generally 
So double double barrel question. <laughs> so um, I think you know if someone if someone has done a PhD and especially if they're a postdoc, they get the ins and outs of the technical aspects of that market really, really well. I mean, actually more postdocs because PhDs are very, very, very focused. And after a postdoc, you've you know, written 10, 20, maybe 200, 500 papers. You know, you have a much broader thing, but you know that space, you know the technology, you know that how that technology has developed over a decade or 20 years in some cases for professors and, and things like that. You really do understand the ins and outs and the benefits of that are phenomenal. And um, I'll actually not talk about Mimicry. I'll talk about Minion again here. Um, the the academics here have re, you know insane amounts of experience around the technology. You know, they've uh, Alex Yakolev has literally written um, five hundred papers on this, published papers, peer reviewed papers on this space. Like he knows the technologies inside out, um, and is phenomenal on the te- technical side. But you know, on the market side, it isn't quite as as clear cut in terms of like the actual dynamics of the market. So with this company, we're bringing on an advisor and, and, and non exec who is um, has that twenty five, you know, basically the equivalent of experience from the industry working in companies like Arm, um, where he's led you know divisions and things like this for speci- this specific space and knows all the dynamics. And it's one of those amazing things. And this is why I think founder founder market fit is, is fantastic because I can read a market report. I can see the news and, you know, semiconductors is a very hot topic at the moment with everything going on in the U S and, and all of this in Taiwan, you know, it's everything's going on and I do read a lot of this stuff. And then I have a half hour call with this, this, uh, this with Jem Davies from arm and a call or meeting with him. And I am learning 20 times more in that half an hour than I would in 20 hours of research. You know, it's things like that. That's what what I think is is needed. And actually, to understand the market, it does take real experience. It does take someone who's absolutely dedicated. And you know, I'm I'm working with Minion, and I'm I'm, I'm leading it out and leading it out of the spin uh, spin out at the moment. Um, and you know, I've basically spent nine months becoming a insanely you know nerdy person about this this industry, reading as much as I can. And yet, I know. And I, I would say compared to the general population, definitely, definitely know this space really, really well. And even compared to investors in the space, you know, I've spent a lot of time de- dedicated to researching it. But, you know, compared to a Jem Davis, it would take me a decade, 20 years to get to this, this this case where I understand what he does. And so I think there's there's a thing around having really amazing people like that to support. And um, there's a thing around founders who are do know this stuff already and who are able to pick it up very, very quickly. Um, but what I would say, that one of the biggest things in terms of skill sets for founders here is that actually it's not just founder market fit in terms of uh, knowledge and understanding. It's actually founder market fit in terms of personality and skill set. So there are certain industries I know I personally, I am completely the wrong person for. I, I don't have the, the, the patience. I don't have the understanding. I don't I could not work in some industries. I wouldn't be able to do it. Whereas some industries absolutely i am the right person even if i don't know about it and i can pick it up and have advisors around it and i'm using myself as an example here but i can see that in, in our other founders in Arta with mimicry there are some industries she is so not suited for um and i'm not going to say what they are but you know there's some things she wouldn't be suited for but where she is with mimicry absolutely perfect because it's big big companies big deals complicated things um lots of lots of wearing parts lots of like you know egos and things like this and lots of like 
you know, very traditional ways of working. And yet I think she's the perfect person for this space. And and that's one of the things. It's it's personality on top of, of knowledge that I think is important with that founder market fit. And I do like the idea of founder market fit because it's it's such an interesting way of, of conceptualizing this. Yeah, it, it it is, and it just always staggers me. I don't make any claims that have invented the term, but we we've been using it for a while, and it just staggers me. It's not more popularized, but there's the opportunity. So, um, last couple of questions. So, so it leads. This one definitely leads. Um, and you mentioned kind of meeting face to face. So, the concept of subsurface founder cues has come up um, as being key when you are evaluating a founder. Now, well, this is this is like not pitch deck. Not found a market fit, but the way they present themselves, the way they communicate, um, you know, how they turn up, that these things are absolutely essential in the mix to, to kind of what way people, particularly investors, make decisions. It, it sounds like from what you said, you agree with that, but do, do, do you have any sort of favorite cues, like when you're seeing a founder? You know, there's, there's, there's the glib thing, oh, you can just tell that, you can just tell that they've, they've got it, you know, like there's that kind of feel, that thing. but it's really specific that you might look for, particularly when you're face-to-face with a founder and go, yeah, that's really interesting, you know, that, that immediately elevates that founder to a different place. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and I am really quite belligerently, like, th- this is, this is fundamental to, to how I see it. And uh, I don't know how, I don't think this is quite as like, overt for the whole of cft but for me personally i think it is absolutely fundamental is that and i'm talking specifically about ceos ceos of a company have to be ceo of that company and that sounds like a really tautological point of saying it but you're you're the ceo you're not there to to quit you're there to make this happen you have to take on the responsibility you have to make decisions and if if you start to see those sub behaviors where they're unable to make decisions yeah. or or never going to do it or going to think too much or doubt themselves you know doubt a little bit of doubt is good because you know arrogance is not great and you know and and, and things like that and you don't want to be completely bullheaded but you have to go and make the the hard decisions needed to run a company otherwise don't run a company i mean it sounds like i'm being ridiculously harsh here but i've seen this we have I, we've experienced this. I've seen this in, in cases where somebody came in to a company um, and take to take on the CEO role and, you know, seemed perfect on paper, industry, background, personality. You know, everyone, you know, knew him, got on with him, thought it was great, but ended up not being the right person, ended up quitting when it got a little bit hard. And I'm now thinking back to that, you know, situations that, that I've seen like this. And um, it has always made me think, you know, I think there's indications of things like that. And that is the biggest thing. And it's not even found the market fit here. It is just, no, no, no. if no, you no, are no. CEO, you are CEO of this company and you yeah, have to be that, you have to make decisions. Otherwise there are many other things you could do with your time. Um, but it's, it's just the wrong thing. Running a company is really hard. And I never tell anyone other than that. It's, uh, you know, I always say it is the best job in the world. I would never want to do anything else. I can never go back to not to, to this. I wouldn't want to go and get a real job or something like that. I don't think I'm suited for that. But it is a really, really hard job. There is stress. There is a massive amount that you need to do. You are making decisions all the time and you are living and dying by those decisions. And if you are unwilling or unable to do that and you can't deal with it when it gets hard, don't do it. Basically, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a very, very black and white thing for me that so we, one of the aspects of that that you're alluding to, we call it turbulence. Um, you know, it's like how how well you deal with navigate uncertainty, how well you you look after your well being, 
how much sort of your resource network nurtures you. You know, all of these things are super important and often don't get asked, but then you get found out six months down the line that actually this person's really brittle. Maybe through no fault of their own, sometimes through fault of their own, but they should have disclosed. But that those that's absolutely essential. I think we, you know, and that is in the bracket of what you're talking about responsibility, which is responsibly communicating. You know, I'm I'm fragile about this. So so, so me personally, I don't like to do international business. If there's personal reasons, I won't I won't fly long haul. I used to live in Australia, so I flew long all the time. But I do that for my own well being, and it's certain. And and I know it's only when I got older that I understood that about myself. That actually, this really keeps me focused. I like going. I like switching off. You know, at seven and knowing that there isn't stuff all you know in different time zones that works for me. Some people love that, right? They absolutely love that kind of aspect of being a, a CEO or a founder that they can actually disperse themselves over many different time zones, geographies, and so. I think <laughs> it, yeah, there are people love. They love. Sorry, they love just, just on, on, on that, Dan. I it, it it. I feel like it looks glamorous, right? And it sounds cool. Yeah, but in in uh, in March, in, in practice, it's looking yeah. like in March it looks like I'm gonna do. Well, give me a sec. It looks like I'm gonna do one, two, three, six, nine cities in in March, yeah. as well as Cambridge and London. So let's yeah. say eleven cities that I'm gonna be in across that. That is that is going to be brutal. Oh yeah, yeah, Good absolutely <laughs> brutal. <laughs> Fun, fun. Don't get me wrong. The adrenaline's going to be all over the place. Yeah. But I'm going to hit eight and go. I never want to get on another plane again in my no, life. No, no, no. You, you <laughs> definitely, you definitely will. But, 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 but the point being is like you know, is it being aware? I mean, that's just one boundary or one insight into yourself, and how you make decisions is another one. The robustness around it. You know, I know. I've been involved in things where I've had a, a co-founder, you know, who's just brilliant at taking on a certain amount of stress, doesn't bother him in the slightest, you know, can kind of like take risks that's really loaded and just not bat an eyelid. And then other people, you know, like wouldn't, would completely freak out. And all of the, all of those subsurface cues, which are often do surface very quickly, uh, you know, they just, it's just amazing how they're never asked. You know, you'd be asked those a lot more in a job interview often than, than you would in, in, in being like applying for the job to be a founder of this very sort of like speculative high risk startup with uh, with lots of upside you know contingent on you anyway like last last question before we kind of start to wrap up which is um so the principle of founder tech is that actually everything that we're talking about is 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 pointing to uh, uh an overall innovation um in venture itself and in the ecosystem itself um away from sort of legacy behaviors, attitudes, asymmetries, inefficiencies to an ecosystem that is a lot more open, fair, and transparent for all, i.e. anyone can enter it and participate, and then they're judged based on their talent. Um, and one of the reasons this is happening, the, yes, there's kind of like a, a generational shift in attitudes, but also there's actually founder tech, which are models, platforms, tools that are rewiring the ecosystem, which used to be kind of closed off, and is making it open and more agile. Do you agree generally with that premise? And then if so, what's your favorite little bit of founder tech that you've, that you've seen? So <clears throat> in, in that premise, I think, yeah, absolutely. You know, there needs to be more openness into what are, you know, very, very close ecosystems. I mean, it's very hard to, for a lot of people to understand how venture capital works. And, and th th thankfully, there are some fantastic books on this. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the power law and things like that, you know, fantastic books, absolutely recommend reading things like that because you understand it. Um, I think, you know, opening up the ecosystem, knowing who people are, 
is really important and knowing how to, to communicate with them. Um, and I think part of that is, is you know, the tech. Personally, LinkedIn is, is amazing um, for this because you do get access to who people are a lot of the time. Now, not everyone's there and not everyone likes to be contacted on LinkedIn. Personally, I take about a month to reply on LinkedIn, which is, you know, not good. But, um, you know, I think LinkedIn is fantastic for this. Crunchbase, also amazing. One of my most used tools and definitely premium on that because I get to see everything, work out which what companies are interested in on all of this stuff. Um, I think that opens up a bit because you get this data that when VC was being started in the 70s and well, before that, you know, with Fairchild and things, none of that existed, right? It was completely black box. You would have no idea what Arthur Rock was interested in investing in before you meet Arthur Rock and ask him and how are you going to do that if you don't already know him and all this stuff like that. You know, it's, it's absolutely amazing how more open it is. But I think there's a lot that can be done there. I think platforms that open this up are fantastic. And I do think that there are some really cool innovations coming on here. And I think there's good buy-in from everyone because investors are sort of also seeing this in that they're like, I don't want to do the same thing everyone else has done. Because look at the, what's happened over the last two years in terms of this 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 bit of a crash we're having in tech. And a lot of that is because everyone jumped into the same deals that are doing the same stuff. So, you know, I think there's a things there. I think the diversity of thought of talent is amazing. You know, having international backgrounded people is amazingly useful when you're trying to work out how to enter a new market and work with things like this. And if you're, you know, a technology that needs to enter a new market, founders with diverse backgrounds is phenomenally amazing when it comes to this. You know, we're working with Europe a lot and we've got European founders that have EU passports, which is, you know, helpful and things like that too. Um, so I think that's great. Um, but look, in terms of the tech for founders, and this has been my recommendation for everything for everyone ever, is the number one thing is read the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horovich. Um, and I'm not going to comment on A16's current investment strategy, but that is the most phenomenal book when it comes to being a better founder, being a better manager, and most importantly, understanding that running a company is really, really hard. Um, so it's not like pure play technology, but that is what I would do. The technology thing, listen to it on Audible. Um, yep. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> that, great. Um, that's great. Um, just to just as we close, is there anything that you would like to shout out um, with with regards to anything at Cambridge Future, Future Tech? Um, yeah, you know, sure. Anything at all that, that we've obviously put things in the show notes as well. But yeah, the, the floor is yours. Sure. I mean, if I'm honest, the the big thing I just want to say is, you know, Cambridge Future Tech, we're doing a lot of really exciting stuff, amazing ventures. Um, we're always looking for people who want to get involved in those ventures as as talent, join the companies, take on the, the mantle and run some businesses and have some really good fun with this hard job. Um, we're, we're always looking for amazing people to get involved, um, always looking for companies that want to um, get involved uh, either as ventures and startups or as corporates that are interested in what's going on. Um, and yeah, we're, we're really keen to work with lots of people. So just get in touch generally and we'll see how we can work together. And just get in touch via the website, which will obviously list list below. Website, yeah, website um, or hello at Cambridge Future Tech um, or the contact page, you know, anything, LinkedIn. I will get back to people eventually if they message me on LinkedIn. Um, but, you know, all of this. Not after your nine year, nine city trip. You're going to be there. There's no way. There's no way. But where are you? People would track you down if you're in Oslo. It'd probably be easier to get to find you in a bar there or somewhere like well, we're that. In, uh, we're in Paris, Barcelona, the States, you know, all of this stuff. Of course. Well, listen, good luck. Good luck with that trip. Thank, thank you for sharing this. Thank you for sharing, giving us an insight into sort of the venture builder model. 
Um, it, I think this, this, it, it's not something we've explored before and it's super relevant and there's lots of sort of, there's, there's differences obviously, but there's lots of tie-ins to kind of the other aspects of the Fanatec conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dan.